Good morning. Welcome to Lake Road Chapel, 7th of June 2020. We're so glad that you are watching us wherever you are. And it's a strange thing, but it's so important to be under the ministry of the Word. We're so privileged to have the very Word of God, the revelation of God, to be able to have it in our own language, to be able to hold it in our hands. What a privilege to be able to handle the Word of God. I'm going to open our service this morning by reading Psalm 31. Encourage you to take a Bible in your hand, God's revelation, God's Word, and turn with me to the middle of the Bible to Psalm and chapter 31. I'll give you a few moments to find that and then read along with me. Psalm 31. It is a psalm of David. It's entitled To the Choir Master. And into your hand I commit my spirit. We're reading Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my, ears with, my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbours, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servants. Save me in your steadfast love, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame, let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently. In insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind, in the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me, when I was in a besieged city, 
I had set in my, said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant words. Well, this morning we are in 1 Peter and we're in chapter 2. So maybe switch from the middle of the Bible towards the end of the Bible, the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12 we'll be looking at. That's 1 Peter 2 and 11 and 12. And these two verses, they function as something of a hinge in 1 Peter. Up until now, uh, Peter has been outlining principles, both theological and practical, for our Christian lives. And beginning next time, and beginning in the next verse, in chapter 2 and verse 13, Peter is going to take those principles and press them into the specific context of our varied relationships. Citizens towards government, which is very, very apt in this, this, in this week of disorder and unrest. As, wi as wives and husbands, parents and children, and so on. Peter is about to get very practical indeed. And verses 11 and 12, which we'll read in a few moments, they function, if you like, as the hinge between these two sections of this wonderful book. In verses 11 and 12, it's like we get a pencil sketch. And then from verse 13 to the end of the book, Peter applies it to our lives. If you look at verses 11 and 12, and notice the central concern of Peter in just in these two verses. He wants to promote the practice of Christian holiness. He tells us first negatively in verse 11 to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and then positively in verse 12 to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. So, that they may see your good deeds. So both negatively and positively, Peter has a concern for a life of Christian holiness. As, as we consider this together, please see with me that Peter uses two themes to structure his discussion. In verse 11, Peter tells us that the pursuit of holiness is war. And in verse 12, he tells us that the pursuit of holiness is witness. So war and witness. Let's pray together before we read God's word. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
So 1 Peter 2 verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And may God bless this reading of his holy and inerrant word. So first of all, I said that the pursuit of holiness is war. The renovation of our natures is imperfect in this life. Everywhere that grace touches and changes, there is still the remnants of our native corruption. So God's word, the scriptures, the Bible teach us that the normal Christian life is a life of conflict. Conflict with sin. And that conflict will never stop raging in your heart or mine, if you're a Christian, until we are face to face with Jesus. There is no truce to be signed, no peace treaty to be made. There is no surrender possible. Which is what Peter is teaching us here in 1 Peter 2 verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And it's important that we get this right. The passions of our flesh are not soft, cuddly toys, adorable puppies that kind of need house training. Or if, as if our sinful passions are just require some regulation to keep them moderate and out of sight. You can never manage sin. Passion, our sinful passions are not delightful, you know, eccentricities of our, to be indulged. Beg your pardon, I have a hard time sometimes with some words. But our passions are not to be indulged as if they are Nothing more than just some, you know, some quirk of my nature. It's easier to say quirk, isn't it? You know, some people say, well, it's just the way that I am. I can't help myself. I'm a bit quirky. No, our sinful passions are not old friends that bring us comfort. Are not, our sinful passions are anything but helpers that bring us relief at the end of a stressful day. What, what, are, what are our passions? Peter says, at heart and at root, they are our enemy. Relentless, filled with hate. Their desire is our destruction. The war that rages in our hearts is prosecuted by our enemy, our passions in a direct frontal assault. There is pressure brought to bear upon us to yield to the demands of the flesh, the lusts of the heart. But sometimes also, probably more often, our sinful passions wage a subtle and covert war. They lie to us where peace is to be found. They lure us into a deadly trap. They offer satisfaction, deliver death. They sometimes point us to good things. They point us to good things 
with which God has blessed us in his grace. And then our passions. Slowly and subtly teach us to love the gift more than the giver. And we assign meaning and find identity in possession of the gift rather than in knowing and being known by the Lord Jesus. Whatever the strategy, whether direct and overt or subtle and covert, our hearts are battlefields. If we are believers in Jesus, our hearts are battlefields and that combat never ceases. And, and then notice the nature of the enemy in the text. It is not the devil. He is our enemy, an angel of light seeking to deceive, if such a thing were possible, even the elect of God. He is our enemy. The devil is a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he can find. The devil is our enemy, but not in this text. The world is our enemy. The devil is our enemy. The world is our enemy. The world often brings to bear peer pressure, worldly influence. That drip feeds into our consciousness. Patterns of thinking and behaviour that are contrary and contradictory to the law and the character of holy God. The world is our enemy, but not here in this text. So who is the enemy in this warfare in our text today? Peter says it is the passions of the flesh. In other words, there are enemies outside of us, the devil and the world, and we need to be very aware of them. But we must be alert to the enemy within. There was a very famous political cartoon, wasn't there? Wasn't there? It's fairly famous. We have seen the enemy and he is us. You probably remember G.K. Chesterton's supposed reply to the London newspaper. And the question was in the newspaper, what is wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton apparently wrote, dear sir, I am your sincerely G.K. Chesterton. But that is Peter's point exactly. And, and, and remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 15 and following on. It is not what, what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. The heart of the matter is the matter of the flesh. Sin resides not just in the words we say or the thoughts that we think, not just in the duties that we have left undone or in the indulgences that we have set our hearts upon to perform. Sin does blossom into full flower in those things. But the roots lie in the heart, in the passion. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. 
Peter calls us to abstain from our sinful passions. Don't toy with them. Don't play, play with them. Don't think fondly of them. Don't give them a little room to grow. Some of you will remember we spoke about the subject and about bonsai trees. Those lovely little miniature Japanese trees that are so carefully cultivated. I always thought that they were just a special species of tree. I really did. That the Japanese bonsai tree was, you know, a very pedigree, if you like, species of tree. But they aren't. They, they, they do grow to normal sizes in nature, but it has, it has everything to do with the way that they're cultivated, that miniaturises them in such definition and beauty. And I think that's how we think about sin. That our sin actually is a bit like a bonsai tree. Okay, I don't want a full-grown oak tree of lust. Or a full giant redwood of anger. Or a full-sized beech tree of greed. No, I'm, I admit that I don't want that. That's, that's, um, you know, that's, that's vulgar, that's unseemly, that's embarrassing. But one of those little bonsai things, in a little carefully cultivated little portion of my heart, just a little closely pruned lust tree, kept in its place, never allowed to be seen by others, never allowed to take over, just a tiny bit of pride, just a little bit of greed. What is the harm in that? It's deadly. It's deadly. Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. There is no place in the Christian life for a little bit of hate, for a little bit of racism, for a little bit of unforgiveness, a little bit of idolatry. A little bit of covetousness. We never say to our sin. What you might find yourself in an awkward position of having to say to an old friend who shows up your, at your door unannounced and asks for a place to stay. I really hope they wouldn't do that now in the middle of lockdown. But you probably would have to say to them, no, I can't let you in because we have to keep our distance. But you may have said to them in... In, you know, just to, to illustrate the point, you can stay but don't make a mess. You can stay as long as you don't upset my routine. You may say that to an old friend who shows up unannounced when we're not in lockdown, but you never get that, but you never get to say that, that to your sin. Because sin will, will lie to you. Sin will say, just let me stay, I'm a great house guest. Just let me sleep on the sofa and you'll never know that I was here. No, all the while your enemy, the passions of your flesh, are plotting your destruction and sowing the seeds of your downfall. My friends, my friends, don't let the passions of flesh cause your downfall. Peter says that sin is never a safe house guest in your heart. Never. Abstain, don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. When it comes to sin, that is the only good advice. Zero tolerance. 
is the Christian's role. We need to uproot the bonsai trees of our heart. They've been so carefully cultivated, so carefully put in their place. Peter says, get rid of them. Abstain, don't touch. And it's easier said than done. I hate my sin, but I love my sin. And the battle rages on. And sometimes it's a particularly ferocious battle. Peter gives us two encouragements in verse 11 to help us stay in the fight, to help us stay in the combat zone. Look at what he calls them, how he speaks to them first at the beginning of verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He only calls them beloved twice in the letter, here and in chapter 4 verse 12. It's significant when he does. One Bible version, I think, says, Dear friends, I urge you, which I think is a bit lame. Peter's language is much stronger. He gives it the full force of the word. He loves them. He wants them to know that he loves them because he wants to know that they are being called. He knows that they're being called to this costly combat with sin. In fact, he's going on to explain in the rest of the book that obedience to the claims of the Lord Jesus in their life will set them on a collision course with the world. So they will suffer for him. In fact, verse 12, which is our very next verse, says something to that effect. So that when they speak against you as evildoers. So he knows, Peter knows that following Christ will put you on a collision course with the world. He knows that rooting up those bonsai trees of your heart is costly. It's hard and it's sore. Peter wants them to know, he wants us to know, as he gives these exhortations, that he loves them deeply. And love has been a theme that we've noticed more than once in 1 Peter. In chapter 1, verse 1, we are foreknown by God, we are foreloved by God. Chapter 1, verse 22, be because you're loved by God, brothers love one another. Beloved. We are loved by God. Know that we are loved by God. Above all else in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has loved us and given his son for us. Never underestimate the impact, the power of Christian love. Love for one another in staying in the fight and making, making progress in our combat with sin. To know that we have each other's back, the accountability we find in the fellowship of the church is never a gotcha moment, but always an expression of genuine brotherly love. We care and we're in it together. Love for one another. Peter calls them beloved. Beloved is something that's unique to brothers and sisters in Christ. Beloved. We're not fighting alone. The second help he gives us is the reminder of our identity. In verse 11 he calls them sojourners and exiles. That echoes, if you remember chapter 1 verse 1, elect exiles of the dispersion. 
It echoes again chapter 1, verse 17. Conduct yourselves through the time of your exile with fear. That is our identity. Peter reminds us of our identity. We are minority people. If you follow Jesus, you are a cultural outsider. Sojourner in exile is language from Abraham. Genesis 23, verse 14. It is language from King David. Psalm 39, verse 12. It is true of us. We are heirs. We belong to the line of Abraham and David. It isn't uncommon for immigrants to form societies with their fellow compatriots from their homeland to hold on to their culture, their heritage, their language and customs. It is hard when you're an immigrant in a new cultural context to preserve your cultural identity, to preserve the distinctives of your homeland. And Peter is saying to us when he calls us sojourners and exiles to remember that this world is not our home. This is not your culture. You are a citizen of another world. You are a citizen of a new world. And we're to embody and live out the characteristics, the cultural traits, as it were, the language and manners of another world, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is where your citizenship really is. We're to live in the world as citizens of another world. Timothy Dudley Smith has written a two-volume biography of John Stott. And in the first volume, he tells a story of a Cambridge professor called Basil Atkinson. And Basil Atkinson was a lifelong bachelor, a well-known eccentric in Cambridge, but a bright, vibrant Christian man. He loved to preach in the open air to students in the, um, um, in the University City of Cambridge. And they put him right in the crosshairs for all kinds of ridicule, as you might imagine. He was a Cambridge don. He was a professor in one of the elite institutions of higher learning. And he's preaching on street corners. And students would heckle him. And a heckler asked him one day, what do you know about heaven? From the point of view that the whole idea of heaven is stupid and completely away with the fairies. And he's trying to make this professor look stupid. But Basil Atkinson smiled in a meekly godly manner at the question, what do you know about heaven? And he just simply smiled and he said, I live there. I am a citizen of heaven. I come from another world. The definitive characteristics of a different culture are mine. How was he able to do that? To suffer such regular insults and ridicule in that halls of that city of learning? How come that he, such a bright, godly man? I mean, following Jesus in that environment was so very costly. He was able to do it because he knew that his true homeland was the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He lived there. He loves there. And he wanted to embody the culture, the heritage, the language, the kindness, the manners of another kingdom. Basil Atkinson had learned to abstain from the passions of the flesh to live for the praises of King Jesus. 
Peter says, first of all, doesn't he, in verse 11, the pursuit of holiness is war. We need to know that we are loving one another, but that we're standing together. We're standing shoulder to shoulder in the conflict. We need to remember who we are. This world is not our home. We're living for another world, living as citizens of that other world in the midst of these dark days. We need to press on in the fight. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. The pursuit of holiness, my friend, is war. The pursuit of holiness is war, but secondly, the pursuit of holiness is witness. If you look with me at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So verse 11 is the negative counsel to abstain, don't touch, don't toy with sin, don't look back fondly, leave it alone, toxic poison, the enemy, the passions of the flesh trying to destroy you, abstain is the negative counsel, verse 12 is the positive counsel. I want honourable conduct, I want good deeds. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, Peter has reminded us that our Father is also our judge. In chapter 1, verse 17, and if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You live Coram Deo before the face of God. God sees, God judges, so conduct yourselves for the audience of one. And Peter says that the world is watching too. That's who he means by the Gentiles. So again, Peter talks about exiles and he talks about how we should conduct ourselves. Let your conduct be honourable. Not only do we live before the face of God, Coram Deo, but we live before the face of the watching world. We should be concerned about our testimony to the world. Peter says our conduct should be honourable, which is an important and strategic word. It means noble or virtuous or praiseworthy. The word was used by pagan Greek writers to celebrate civic virtue and nobility of character. So Peter is saying to believers that I want your conduct to be so honourable, so kind, so gracious, so generous, so forgiving. I want you to be good, so such in your conduct and behaviour that even the pagans acknowledge your fundamental decency. If you claim to be a believer, are you known as a kind and forgiving person? Or are you known as an angry, obnoxious one? The world cannot deny the difference that Christ has made. And even by their standards, it's clear that you're living by a different set of values. Your witness really does matter. You see, you may be, you, you may be ever so self-righteous because you point to the amount of times that you talk about Jesus at your work, which is all very good. But if you can't be trusted, your witness suffers. No matter how many times you open your mouth to talk about Jesus, 
No one will listen to you seriously if you're just a gossip or a flirt. Your life matters to your witness. But if you seek to live humbly, imperfectly for sure, to live for Christ, you should expect two things. Verse 12, it isn't just that your non-Christian friends and colleagues, colleagues and neighbours will see their good deeds, but they won't react well. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when, not if, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of their visit on the day of visitation. The world doesn't won't like it if you're faithful to Jesus, and we know that to be true. Christians are an irritating lot, and holy Christians are the worst of the bunch. They're kind, they're patient, they care about you, they're guided by an ethic that is not derived from the expectations of their peers. They don't just go with the flow. They don't join in when everyone else is mocking or deriding that person in the office or at school. They just don't pass on that juicy bit of gossip. They don't bend the rules to be one of the gang. It's infuriating. And why is it infuriating? Because Christians sting our consciences. They expose us. They remind us of the sin festering in our own hearts and we don't like it. So what do we do? Peter says they speak against you as evildoers. Slander, mockery, subtle slights, social exclusion, cutting people dead, the cold shoulder, favouritism. I know that some of you have been on the receiving end of that. And you and I both know how painful that, that can be. The pressure to compromise, to fit in, can be enormous. So why should you stick your neck out, stand your ground, live a painful life as an exile, an outsider for Jesus' sake, when to do so means that the world will speak against you as an evildoer? What does Peter say? Do it! So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I had a, I, I'm fascinated by this term, the day of visitation. And I love the fact, actually, that scholars are divided on this because I think both are lovely. <laughs> the majority say it's a reference to the return of Jesus Christ, King Jesus in judgment. So... It, they kind of read Peter as saying, I want you to live in such a way, I want you to live in such a manner, that no matter what slander is thrown against you, when judgment day comes, even unbelievers will be forced to confess that you are a person of godly integrity. And they must concede in you know, they must concede the glory of God. And even as they're dispatched in judgment to the outer darkness where there's weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It's a solemn picture. But there's another view which suggests that the day of visitation may not only refer to judgment day, but to another day. Another day, the visitation of grace. The visitation of mercy erupting into a person's life ahead of time before Judgment Day, in the wake of your witness as you live a life that is honourable among the Gentiles 
they see your good deeds. And though they once slandered you because you were a Christian, they poked fun at you, they mocked you, they said hateful things about you because you're a Bible-believing, Bible-living Christian. You were mocked because you lived by the book and by his grace. God made you the human instrument that led that person to Christ. So once they slandered you, now they give glory to God on the day of visitation. I love both versions of that. What is your purpose as a Christian? It isn't comfort, it's not pleasure, it isn't a happy, healthy home. We're thankful to God for his grace, but it's not our focus, so it's not our purpose, material prosperity. It isn't temporal security. Your purpose is the glory of God. That is your great delight. The glory of God is your animating and governing concern. If only you would remember and fix your eyes on that as your great purpose, you will see that though painful, living for Jesus is the only way to achieve it. It's a costly life as a sojourner and an exile, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, staying in the fight for holiness and likeness to Jesus so that God may be glorified not only directly by you in praise and obedience, but through you as his instrument. Keep the end in view. You're about his glory. And when that becomes the great motivation of your heart, you will endure every trial and slander hurled at you so that you may make much of him and display him before the watching world. Today, today, my friend, if you're waging the warfare for Christian holiness, it is hard and sore and costly. Keep the end in view. And if you find yourself irritated today by the testimony of a Christian, maybe a Christian colleague or a brother or sister or a friend, please understand why you're irritated. They, it isn't that they think they're better than you. Absolutely not. They know they're guilty sinners. The difference is they've fled to Jesus for mercy. They've found rest and peace there. They've found forgiveness there. And forgiveness has erupted into their lives and they want to live to please him, please Jesus. Yes, we sin and stumble. Yes, we're hypocritical. But we're clinging to Jesus and trying to follow him, which is why we live the way we do. Mercy has visited us. Today, if you're watching this and you're not a believer, that same mercy is ready to visit you. Grace is ready to visit you. Jesus is ready to visit your heart. So, today, instead of speaking against those Christians as evildoers, why not join them? Join them. Stop going with the flow. Swim against the stream. By the grace of God, become a sojourner and an exile, a citizen of a different world through faith in Jesus Christ. This is not the home of those who know him. We're headed for the land of righteousness, a land of glory, and I would love for you 
to join us. Pursuing holiness is war. And if your life is one of endless peace and ease, it may be that you're not a Christian. Why is it so difficult? Why am I so weary in the combat against sin? Read the scriptures and see it's the normal Christian life. It's how it will be until our Saviour returns. It is not unusual. It's the way it is. Press on, stay in the fight. Abstain from the passions of the flesh that wants a destruction of your soul. It's time to burn those little bonsai trees that are poison to your soul. And pursuing holiness is witness. Following Jesus is going to be hard. It's going to be noticed by the world. They won't like it. Having God's glory in your sights, go hard after his praise. Make that your priority. Live for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, my dear friend, we want to live for Jesus so that the Gentiles might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. May it be a day of the visitation of grace ahead of time that many may join in give, giving glory to God for Jesus Christ and that it may not be the day of visitation of judgment when our Saviour returns, when it is too late, when the door closes, the opportunity is over. Live for Jesus, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus by faith. Come to Jesus continually. Come to Jesus together. Come to Jesus to be like him. Come to Jesus to praise him. Come to Jesus to proclaim him. Come to Jesus for mercy. So join the fight for Christian holiness. Stay in the fight. Bear witness to King Jesus, who is the Lord and the King. And may it be so in your heart, for his glory and his name's sake. Amen. We're going to close our service. There will be links on the page as normal to sung worship. And uh, while it is not the same as singing together, I encourage you to join in with that as well. There'll be a prayer guide as well, which will guide you through the day and also for the rest of the week. But let us read together verses of Holy Scripture as a benediction as we go our own way for the rest of this day. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen.